Hey, uh, why don't we have a fun time worshiping and praising the Lord together. Uh, Join me in prayer and then uh, we'll jump into the Bible. Lord, so grateful for uh, who you are. We are grateful to be a church that can come together, uh, rejoice, worship, and sing your praises. And so uh, we we pray that uh, you would be glorified in the way that we think about you and study you and consider you this morning, that uh, by the work of your Spirit, you would be uh, opening eyes and illuminating hearts to a deeper and deeper love and affection for you to praise and bring glory to your name. Uh, Help us with that. We pray it in the name of Jesus. All God's people said? Amen. Hey, you got a Bible. We're going to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Just check this collar, make sure we didn't get anything messed up here. All right, so, really, if, if Michigan would have lost yesterday, this was, this was like a pre-planned, got to wear this, take my medicine, if they would have lost, it would have been really embarrassing, so I thought about waiting two weeks until after we beat Wisconsin, but, uh, you know, maybe it'll make a second appearance, we'll see. Uh, hey, if you got a Bible... 1 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, if you're grabbing one of those pew Bibles in front of you, uh, it's page 1143-ish, somewhere in there, uh, and so you can, you can find your way from there. But uh, we're going to continue on in a series through Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. Um, this is the first of two letters. The scripture, however, uh, we know in sometime in 1 Corinthians that Paul's actually written a letter to them before. Uh, one of the things that we said that is really important as we read through this is Paul is really familiar with this church. He's spent a year and a half there. Uh, he knows them well, he considers them, and uh, really has a relationship like a father to children as he sees them, which is sensible because so much of this letter is kind of wrapped up in his various corrections and rebukes to them. So he's, he's looking and hearing uh, from Chloe's people and some others we found out a couple weeks ago that they've they've come and reported to him that there's some issues in the church and so he's beginning to address these issues by letter and going okay let's let's fix some things and get some things sorted out and so among these issues we've said that uh, we find reoccurring over and over and over again in this that uh, this is a church who has been heavily influenced by the culture that is around them in ways that detract from their relationship to God and in ways that have led them into sinful paths. And so uh, as we talked about the the city of Corinth, we said this is a city that was uh, really kind of dabbling in all kinds of evil and immoral activities. Uh, It was a city where people traveled from all around the world to be at and a part of uh, because of its location as a major thoroughfare. And so in that, uh, it led to all different kinds of really... uh, really perverse and terrible sin that had found its way in and paganism that had really kind of held this in high esteem. And so the church, even after many had become believers and are following Jesus, are are really struggling and battling with this understanding of what the gospel is and the allure of the culture around them. And so frequently Paul's going to deal with what that looks like and how they ought to be responding. Uh, The second thing that we said is again reoccurring and he addresses several times is that this is a church that had found themselves very divided and quarrelsome 
among themselves. And so it was a church that didn't have very great unity together as a whole body. Instead, uh, what it had become were many cliques and factions and uh, people who had just kind of divided themselves up on a basis of a whole bunch of different things. They had done so on socioeconomic lines. They had done so on racial lines. They had done so, what we looked at specifically last week, was they had even done so based on who the personality in, in the leadership that they liked the most was. And so they had found ways to divide haves and have-nots in all different ways, shapes, and forms because ultimately we said uh, the problem was that they valued things more than they valued the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then uh, third, and what we'll kind of look a little bit into today and unfold, and, and we'll come back to this a variety of times and places and ways through the text, is that they had replaced the gifting of the Holy Spirit as more important than the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And so uh, what they've done is they, they kind of found themselves to and interested in uh, what God was going to do for them by the work of His Holy Spirit in uh, providing gifting and providing some external things, and they had neglected what God was doing to them in the transformation of their mind, heart, attitude, and lives in the working of the Holy Spirit, bringing them into greater affection for uh, and desire to follow Christ. Now, where we pick up today is kind of the shift between uh, what we looked at last week where Paul's talking about these different personalities and into how this has been the case that it is not only a problem in division, but it's also a problem in the way that they've devalued the work of the Holy Spirit in the gospel and in their own lives even. And so, um, think about this. In this context, right, persuasion is a, is a really fascinating thing. In the culture we live in, um, in fact, before I was a I feel like uh, I spent some time in this, this particular field. Uh, we, we live in a culture where one of the most powerful motivators and, and really forces in all of the United States and really the Western world is sales done through marketing and persuasion, right? Uh, I can still remember really well the first time that I was persuaded or sold on something that later you realize was not what it was said to be. Amen? Been there before? So, all of you have been there before. Some of you are willing to admit it. Let me just help you. Okay, I'll just, I'll just go out there so you can feel like, okay, yeah, you're right. I've done that too. When I was a teenager, I got my first job at 15. Uh, it was actually like a pretty well-paying job. I was also like one of the older kids among my friends. And so by the time I had just turned 16, I was flush with cash. Okay, I, like at least in my own head, I had like hundreds of dollars. Okay, and so it was like a big deal to me. Uh, by hundreds, I mean at least over a hundred. And so uh, that was enough for me. I was like, let's go to, and, and at that time, and I know maybe like some of the younger generation doesn't even understand what this is, but it was like, let's go to the mall, uh, which is just this building where they put a bunch of stores in. It's like if Amazon was a real place, right? Uh, and so you would just go there, and was there anything you needed? No. Like, were you actually going to buy something of substance in no, mostly you were just going with your friends to like do something other than just sit. And so uh, we, we go to this mall, and I remember walking through the mall. Now there's this 
Like the stores in the mall don't really offer very many things of substance to begin with, but they're higher class than the place that I got caught. Because in the aisles, right, in the middle of the aisles, in between the stores, there's these kiosks. Come on. Okay? And, and you know, if you've been to the mall or if you were a veteran, you just walk by the kiosks. Now, it takes a little bit of bravery to do this because there's people at the kiosks, and every once in a while, those people who have been deciding that they're going to get paid based on commission, right? Like, they have a little bit of ambition, and they go, excuse me, sir, 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 sir. And you feel, you feel rude, right? But if you've been there enough, you've learned. You just walk by those people. You, don't, you just ignore them because they are fishing, and they're going to lure you in, and it's a trap, right? And, but I, 16, $112 in my bank account. Had no idea that was going to happen to me. Uh, not normally like the target audience, right? Normally I'm at the mall with my mom. But here I am with my friends, got my cash. This guy goes, hey, 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 hey come here, come here, come here. Okay, seems like a nice enough guy. He got one of those things. It's like, a, it's like a wooden handle, and then it's got a bunch of just copper wires sticking out of that. Seen one of those? It's like a head scratcher. That's all it is. Is, is you bend the wires, and then he would stick it on your head, and it would, like the way that it touches your head, it would like make chills run down your spine. Like, oh, that was really weird. And so he does that, and, and then he begins to tell me about it. And I'm thinking, okay, but I, this doesn't seem like it's worth $29. That was a correct thought. However, he begins to speak. And he begins to explain, and he begins to persuade, and he's talking about how this is going to cure cancer, and it's going to fix all of my problems, and I'll have, you know, a prettier girlfriend, and life will be way better if I just spend this $29. And after about five minutes, I'm thinking, man, why isn't this $59? I should buy two, right? So, so I buy it. And I'm like, I'm pretty enthusiastic about it. In fact, I remember I go home that night and like I go and I show my mom. Like she's like, how'd you do at the mall? Did you have fun? Blah, blah, blah. I buy this and I'm explaining it to her. And she's really happy for me. And, and then like my mom is very encouraging. Even if the encouragement is not in reality, she's going to, oh yeah, that's cool. I'm glad you figured out a way to earn money and spend it on what you want. My dad has not uh, that type of encouragement in him. And so he looks at it, he goes, well, that's stupid. <laughs> and all that persuasion turns into a real quick different persuasion. Because I think, yeah, he's right. <laughs> that is stupid. What a, man, I just got sold on something. Right, I got persuaded. But here's, here's my point, right? We exist in a culture and a society that uh, really values and esteems the art of persuasion, Right? And even the most logical thinkers among us, and even the most kind of like callous, unemotional, like I'm just, I'm just going to do what I've really mapped out and organized to be right, uh, fall victim oftentimes to the emotion of persuasion, right? Somebody can say some things in a really captivating way. Somebody can provide some evidence for things, kind of moved and angled in such a way that you go, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm on with this, right? Now, the thing that makes this so difficult is really, like, it's pretty inconsequential if you've wasted $30 at a mall kiosk, listen, been there, it's, it's not 
bad, right? However, what's happened in the church in Corinth, and uh, 2,000 years later, all across the country, all across the world, this is happening in churches today, is you find a whole bunch of people who have a, a genuine desire to kind of know, understand, follow the Bible, and, and what's been happening is, is replacing good exposition of the Scripture, our persuasive speaking and leading away from the truth of the gospel and into some type of sect or cult or uh, following of things that actually aren't true. Amen? You, you kind of with me and what, what I'm giving to you here? We, in fact, Whitney and I started this week watching a documentary on Waco, Texas. Uh, and you remember uh, David Koresh in Waco, if you're old enough to kind of get that in the early 90s. Uh, it's a cult. He doesn't even start it. He just shows up. He's not the author, the beginner of this cult. He shows up as their, like, new prophet. And a few years later, like, there's all kinds of craziness happening. Why, why is it? Well, while you watch these interviews and all all of these followers are talking about how like, he just had this way of he answered all these questions and he just kind of guides and manipulates the truth of the text and he really brought things into such a way where it was really hard to even question him because he seemed like he just knew everything. And what had happened was they had backseated the idea of the scriptures. By the way, this, I mean, this cult, he's, he's professing Christianity. They're reading the Bible. This is really frequent, and, and that's an extreme case, which is really frequent all throughout the United States, all throughout the world, where people have found themselves not interested in really assessing the truth of the Scriptures on their own, but being persuaded by a strong personality or a charismatic leader to kind of guide them into things. Now, what Paul's concern is, is here in the church in Corinth, as quarrels and factions have existed among them, that they've fallen victim, or at least given themselves to susceptibility of the exact same thing. That they're more interested in who's most appealing to them, to entertain them, than they are in what God actually says. And that's why he's got some people there who are going on follow Paul because he's really smart. And some people are going, well, I follow Paulos because he's more entertaining to listen to. And some people are going, I follow Peter. And some people are going, no, 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 I don't follow any of them. I just follow Jesus. Like, I don't even need all of you. And so he's recognizing this, and, and this is how he's going to respond to it, okay? So pick up with me in 1 Corinthians 2. He says, when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Get this. So that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Here's, here's what we're uh, ultimately looking to say today out of this text, what Paul's kind of getting at, is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is received through the power of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, not in the persuasion of men. All right, so, so let me kind of help you with why this is so important. And, and let's kind of look at this idea, because he says, 
I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, to really get the magnitude or the power of that statement in and of itself, you've got to know a little bit about Paul. So if you grew up in the church, maybe you knew this. If not, uh, let me help you with this. Paul is describing himself as the least of the apostles. He's, he's kind of like the guy who was late to the party. Uh, in fact, as far as we know in the scriptures, he's, he's the only one who doesn't see Jesus during his earthly ministry. Never got to experience the times that Jesus is on earth, unlike the other 12 uh, disciples who are walking with him uh, and are writing from firsthand accounts. Jesus, or, or Paul, experiences Jesus after the fact. Here's what happens. The church... It's really exploding. Things are starting to take off in Jerusalem. Paul is on the other side of the fence. He's actually named Saul at the time. He is uh, ambitious, knowledgeable, up-and-coming, angry guy. It's probably the best way to describe him. He's been raised in Jewish culture, uh, taking classes at the best of Jewish schools. And not only that, he happens to be a Roman citizen, which puts him at a distinct advantage culturally at that time. He's, um, he's well-spoken, he's well-read, he's well-thought-of among his peers, and he's, he's really ascending the ranks of Jewish power. Now, because of this, as Christianity comes in and proclaims a message of grace rather than uh, working credibility, he finds it very, very threatening. Right? So the very idea that it's not by your hard work, it's not by your exhaustive knowledge, it's not by you doing enough things that you could be right with God, Paul is really, Saul at the time, is really against this. And so uh, he leads the charge in persecution against the church. In Acts chapter 7, this guy named Stephen becomes the first Christian martyr. Uh, he preaches the gospel. Jews actually drag him out of the city and they start to throw rocks at him until they kill him. And the Bible says that Saul is the guy holding the coats for all of these thugs who are throwing stones at Stephen to kill him. And then out of this, Saul finds hearty agreement and approval with it, so much so that in Acts chapter 8, he begins to take off. And he's finding Christians, putting them in jail, sentencing them to death, finding ways to oppress and try to squash this movement of Jesus. While he is going from Jerusalem to a city called Damascus to find more of them under conscriptions of the governor, like, hey, I'm going to go find and put to death these Christians. That's a zealous, passionate, God-hating man. Jesus knocks him down, blinds him. Uh, he comes to know Christ. He shows up. There's a guy that uh, actually, Ananias, he, he gets to the city and is taught the gospel, experiences the revelation of Jesus, and everything in his life changes. Now, the reason this is so important is because Paul himself is going to write afterwards that if there is anybody who had the ability to really depend on themselves, on what they knew, on how well they did, on what they were. He's the guy. More than you, more than me. And, and I don't think he's wrong. In fact, uh, he writes this letter to the church in Philippi, and, and he's talking about why we would not be a people who place confidence in our flesh. Why we would not be a people who find our value in how well we're doing. And he says, listen, it's, it's just a losing battle. And think about it. If any of you 
feel like you could be confident in, I'm a good enough person to be okay with God. Here's, here's what Paul would challenge you with. He says, he says, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. Anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh. I have far more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, found blameless. Here's Paul's argument. Out of all of the people who would have the right heritage, out of all of the people who would have the right credentials, out of all of the people who would have the best knowledge, out of all the people who would have the most authority to say things, not only that, out of the people who are most experientially right, out of the people who have lived and done the right things, I'm better at it than you were. And, and I think he's right. He's, he's spent his whole life growing up, learning the scriptures. He had the Old Testament memorized. He spent his whole life under the best educators. And he spent his whole life, according to what he says, the righteousness found in the law. That means all of the Old Testament commands in a legalistic, external standard. He's blameless. Never broken them. Never done what is wrong. And yet what he recognizes is the same thing that is true of us, that his very best efforts, the very hardest things, the very best that he has done was not enough. And so he goes on in Philippians to say, but those things, those things that were so hard to get to, those credentials that would have made me so persuasive, those uh, initials behind my name, those uh, recognition of the things that I've done, that, that resume that I have that supersedes yours, it was not enough. And so I count all of that as loss in view, and then this is what he says, of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He's, he's going to go first and foremost, the value is going to be surpassed in the gospel. This, this is the gospel. That the value is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing that we could do in our own working, in our own ability. And so he, so he comes back to 1 Corinthians 2. And he says, When I came to you, I didn't come with superiority of speech or wisdom, proclaiming you the testimony of God. I determined to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And that, notice this. So he says superiority of speech. Then he says it wasn't in persuasive words of wisdom. And he was with them in weakness and trembling. Right? And so, so all of the things. You go all the way back to that kiosk in the mall. All of the things that we think of as persuasive and kind of captivating and esteemed as a culture, Paul goes, I, I washed those away. We find people who have great credentials or people who can speak authoritatively or people that just look confident like they know what's going on are generally the people that we want to listen to and follow, right? He goes, I didn't, I didn't mess with any of that. I wasn't interested in any of that. Here's what I determined. I determined to know Nothing other than Jesus Christ and Him crucified so that your faith would rest on the power of God through His Holy Spirit, not on my persuasive words. Now, one other thing before we kind of finish up in verse 5. Uh, does this mean 
that we ought not to know deeply and well the truths of the Scripture. I mean, because before this, Paul knows uh, more about the Bible than you and I will learn in five lifetimes. He's, I mean, he is as studious. Uh, I, would, I would make the argument outside of Jesus Christ, uh, Paul might be the smartest man that walked the earth in terms of what it looks like to be a Christian, a knowledgeable, understanding Christian. Uh, in fact, even, uh, so later on in the Bible, in 2 Peter, one of the last books written in the Bible, Peter himself is going to talk about Paul, uh, and he's, and he's going to allude to this idea that like, hey, I know his letters are hard to read because he's way too smart for us, but you got to stay with him. Right? Like, so Paul's just a genius, right? You read that in 2 Peter. I'm, I'm telling you, it's in the Bible, right? He's, he's as smart as anyone comes by. And he goes, hey, I didn't know anything except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so I think you could take that and go, well, so does that mean it's really not that important to study the Bible? Does that mean that we shouldn't really dissect the Bible? All we really need to know is Jesus, and if we know that, we know enough to be effective with the gospel. And, and here's my answer to that. Yes and no, right? Here's, here's where yes comes into play. Yes comes into play because I think a lot of times, especially American believers, will, will remain cowardly and silent about their faith. And one of the primary reasons is because you don't think you know enough. Amen? Because you're afraid, well, what if they ask this question? Or what if they ask that question? Or, or what about this thing that I don't really understand? Or what about this passage in the scripture that I probably have never read that they're going to ask me about? And, and I'm just not confident enough to tell someone. And, and here's, here's what Paul is getting across here. So what if you don't know? So what? You, in fact... You go read throughout the Gospels and then throughout the book of Acts, which is the history of the early church, and watch what happens when people truly and honestly encounter Jesus. You know what they know? Nothing. They know nothing except what? Jesus Christ. And in the book of Acts, and him crucified. That's all they know. Right away. You know what they're doing? Come see the man who has told me all that I've done. That's John 4, the woman at the well. She's had one interaction with Jesus that lasted three minutes. She goes back to her city, says, let me be an evangelist, right? Acts, Acts chapter 8, you find this uh, Ethiopian eunuch. He's going to go tell people, right? The, the constant reminder in Scripture is when people encounter Jesus, it wasn't let me take some course in theology, let me spend a few years studying, let me get to a point of comfort before I would ever tell someone about the gospel. I think what Paul's encouraging here is you don't have to know anything but Jesus Christ and Him crucified to be someone who would proclaim Jesus Christ and Him crucified for us. That is the gospel. Now, the side of it that is no is uh, you don't use that as an excuse to never go deeper into the gospel. I think what Paul would say is that the gospel is not the starting line. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the race. You never outgrow that, right? There, there was this 
kind of movement in contemporary Christianity that I think really uh, had some good intentions but kind of messed some things up where it began to view what it meant to be a Christian as starting at believing that Jesus Christ died and resurrected from the dead so that he could save you from your sins and then after that you went on a journey where it was ultimately about your works, your knowledge, and your ability to do the right things knowing that that was your ticket to heaven and not much else. It's not what the Bible teaches. What the Bible teaches is that the gospel, the word of the cross, is sanctification. What the gospel is, is your life. That you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. Now you are his and so all you know is Jesus Christ and him crucified and that's everything. It affects everything in your life. It's not just Sunday morning for an hour. It's all the time. I exist to proclaim the glory of God through and because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I don't need persuasive words of wisdom and I don't need knowledge. I need to remember Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Why? So that, this is verse 5, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. That we would be a people who ultimately find our value in the power of God. He's going to go on, and um, <laughs> I wasn't going to tell you this, but I, I'm not going to hide it from you. Uh, my intention when we started today was to go through all of chapter 2. Uh, because, yeah, okay, I know. Uh, because he's going to go on to talk about what the power of God looks like in the Holy Spirit revealing the truth of the gospel to us in the Holy Spirit, guiding us in the Holy Spirit, uh, opening our eyes that we might receive and know and follow the gospel of Jesus Christ in the Holy Spirit, guiding us and producing fruit in our lives so that we would not find ourselves resting on the power of men, including ourselves, that we wouldn't think, I just got to try harder. I just got to do better. I just got to do more because it's not the gospel. Here's, here's what he means to bring up. That faith is in the power of God through the working of his Holy Spirit to save you. Not in your power. Not in your ability, not in your hard work. It exists in Him and faith in His power and His authority over your life. And so let me, let me close with this and we'll just you come back next week, all right? So we'll get to that chapter. We'll deal with it. Right? Let, me, let me close with this thought. Some of you have been persuaded and, and some of you don't even realize it. You, you've been persuaded by, by a world and a culture that is lost. And, and I'm convinced a lot of times they don't even realize it. And, and they're not malicious, they're just foolish. That's, that's what he said in chapter 1, that the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. That the wisdom of the world is not real wisdom. You and I are bombarded every day, minute after minute, hour after hour, 
with, with people trying to persuade you to find purpose, to find fulfillment, to find satisfaction in all kinds of things that are just going to fall short. And, and the thing that's so crazy is a lot of times they satisfy for a time. A lot of times you shell out your $30 and for the next 45 minutes you feel like your life is complete and fulfilled. And I'm, I just, I pray that this morning, maybe I'm the guy who just looks at it when you got home and said, well, that's stupid. Because here's what I'm convinced of. I'm convinced that no matter where you look, if it is not Jesus Christ and him crucified, it's ultimately going to let you down. Because you are placing your faith in the power of men rather than the power of God. And it will always fall short. And so why don't, why don't you pray with me? Uh, and, and if I can persuade you, not by human wisdom, but by the truth of the scripture, I will say this. You ought to place your faith, you ought to rest it on the wisdom of God, on the power of God, on the righteousness of God, on the salvation, the sanctification, the redemption of God, which he says in verse 30 of chapter 1 is by his doing, God's doing. You are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That it all comes back to trusting in, placing your faith in Jesus Christ. Pray with me. Lord, We are often fickle people. We're often persuaded. We're often led astray and aside, even as believers. And the truth is, I think there are some in here this morning who have never become a believer, never placed their faith in Christ, never existed in the power of your Spirit to save redeem, sanctify us. Lord, I pray that uh, as we walk forward, perhaps today is a day that turning point. Maybe it's a refreshing among the believers. Maybe uh, it is the day of salvation for those who have never placed faith in you. But in it, I pray that it wouldn't be at the persuasive words of me or or any person in their wisdom or their worldly nature, but rather that it would be in the persuasion of your spirit in power so that our faith would rest on the power of Jesus Christ and him crucified. We're, we're grateful for it. I pray that uh, it would motivate deeply in our lives. Help us with it, Lord. Pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Why don't you stand? We'll sing one more song.